I wanted to give you one of my show and tells from when I was in fourth grade, my most prized possession in all the world. It was a Shack Attack action figure. This was Shaquille O'Neal and he was able to dunk it and it was amazing. Now, it was the greatest gift I'd ever been given, even better than my little brother or sister, don't tell them that. Um, and I wanted to tell the whole world about my Shack Attack figure. We had a rule in Mrs. Crane's class that we weren't allowed to bring toys to class and we certainly couldn't play them. Um, is that all good? Yeah. All right. um, we, we certainly couldn't play with them in class. So I could bring Shaq for show and tell, but I couldn't play with him during class. And if you were caught, this toy was put in the worst place imaginable. Mrs. Crane called it the May Box. The May Box meant you may never see it again. It actually meant you didn't see it until the month of May. It's when you didn't get, and it was intense. I mean, that's a nine month, so you lost it early on. I mean, you were, and, and for a fourth grader, May, that, you might have as well said eternity, right? That's forever. And so you can see where this is going, right? I couldn't help myself playing with my Shaq doll, and the teacher um, caught me red-handed doing a sick Shaq crush dunk onto my little desk as I'd flipped up my little desk and was playing with him there, took it away, and I didn't see poor Shaq until May. It was so sad. It's the worst show and tell of my life. But this morning, we're going to focus our attention on the climax of Matthew and see the greatest show and tell ever. Uh, probably wise to spend more time on the resurrection of Jesus than my Shaquille O'Neal action figure. Today, we see that Jesus is alive. Um, we greet each other on, on Easter morning. He is risen? He is risen indeed. Yeah, he is risen indeed. We got it in our household. Um, Again, I can't hear you. Uh, he is risen indeed. And I thought, man, uh, I, I wanted to pretend it was Easter, but I thought, you know what? We're actually already doing that because last Easter, it was snowing on Easter Sunday and we were streaming from the house. So apparently we're not allowed to talk about the resurrection in person. I don't know why this seems to be the way we roll. Um, but we, we hear the words of the angel this morning in Matthew 28 in the empty tomb. Come and see. He's not here. He's alive. And then go and tell. Tell the disciples the greatest news that could be ever told. Go, come and see. Go and tell. This is our show and tell uh, this morning. Um, this, this is the, the fact that the living, risen Savior is alive, is the greatest thing that we could ever be shown, and it's the greatest news that we could ever tell. And this morning, we're going to see three things that this gave those that were at the tomb, and three things it gives us this morning. We have a living hope. We have a living hope. Does anybody need living hope this morning? Need life and need hope. Let's look at three things together. Number one, the evidence gives us great confidence. If you're filling in your blanks or taking notes, the evidence gives us great confidence. So can I be real for a second? For just a millisecond? Uh, I hate playing chess with smart people drives me nuts. Um, they are always one step ahead. They're anticipating my every move. I'm like, why did you put it there? That was dumb. And then the next thing you know, it checkmate. And I'm just like, and I'm turning over tables. Very Christ-like of me, right? Um, can't stand losing, as my wife well knows. Uh, Matthew, our author, is a great chess player here, and he's putting all the right pieces in all the right places because he knows what's coming. Now, the central claim of the early church was that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was raised from the dead. It wasn't that he was a great teacher, a powerful healer, great with small children and lambs, his, not about his carpentry skills, um, not that he was an inspector. 
firing leader or an innocent victim of a gross injustice, although those were all true. That's not what their faith and hope centered on. No, it was the fact that Jesus had been bodily raised to life after being truly buried and dead. In fact, everything hinged on this for these people. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. See, if Jesus simply died and and was buried to decompose, then that's exactly what would happen to us too. And of course, people at that time, just like today, then they laughed at this insane claim that a dead man had raised from the dead, that he's just moving around somewhere like Casper's ghost. And they offered other explanations. Well, maybe, maybe he never died in the first place. Maybe the disciples or somebody else stole his body. Maybe the women went to the wrong tomb. They just went to the wrong place. It's like me putting away dishes in our kitchen. I just can't, I'm in in the wrong place with the wrong thing, right? So Matthew, our chess player here, he anticipates these explanations and he sets his pieces in place to show there's only one explanation and that is Jesus is alive. Checkmate. So let's look at these couple of these arguments. Number one, uh, maybe Jesus never actually died. Maybe Jesus never actually died. Uh, look with me in verses 27, or excuse me, verse 57 of Matthew 27. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. So here's Joseph, a rich follower of Jesus, and he asks for Jesus' body to be buried. Verse 58, when he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. So the fact here that Pilate hands Jesus' body over to Joseph, one of his followers, shows that he's really dead, right? Not mostly dead, all dead. Um, Romans didn't take half measures in capital punishment. Their condemned rebels did not escape death. So this wasn't, well, maybe Jesus wasn't all the way dead, so that when he didn't come back to life, he just, you know, kept living. No, no, no. There's no way that Pilate would have handed him over if he wasn't really dead. So we can, we can scratch that one from the record. Number two, maybe they lost the body, right? Maybe they lost the body. Now notice here in verse 59, it says, And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. Now what's interesting... Matthew, who doesn't waste words, he takes time to underline that it was a new tomb. Why would he point that out? Well, today when people are buried, what we think of, what, what, what kind of image comes to our mind? We think of a hole in the ground, dirt, shovel, six feet under, and a tombstone, right? That's not how the Jews buried people. They buried them in caves, often underneath their own homes, and they would wrap them in cloth with perfumes and spices, and they'd put them on one of these ledges along, this is, this is some of the remains of, of one of these rich people's tombs, they put them all, the bodies on these ledges. Now often, this was a family tomb, and there'd be several uh, bodies from the same family that were in there that had decomposed. And so it could, it could be easy to get them confused, right? Maybe they just didn't find Jesus' body in the pile. But here, Matthew goes out of his way to explain carefully, it's a new tomb. So there'd be one body in the tomb, right? There are no other bodies to mistake for Jesus's. Attention to detail. Now, maybe, maybe his body was stolen, right? That's a possibility. Uh, of course, the best way to pretend Jesus rose from the dead when he didn't would just be to hide the evidence. Be like, oh, wow, I nobody can find Jesus. It's a miracle. He's alive, right? So verse 62, 
The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, verse 64, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Be even worse if they thought he was raised. Verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So grave robbery was very common at this time in the ancient world. So they would take these huge stones about six feet across in diameter and they would lay these in this groove. And this groove was at a bit of an incline so that it couldn't be moved from the inside. It was easy to seal, but it was hard to open, which kind of sounds like an advertisement for Ziplocs with our zinc and vitamin C in them. Um, Here we see the same leaders who had killed Jesus in the first place, they would want nothing less than for him to be perceived alive. So they're going to take every precaution necessary. And they put their own guards in front of the tomb. Remember Pilate said, this time I'm I'm staying out of this one. And it was good luck getting past um, this Jewish Marine Corps, or I guess this is the army technically, but there's no way that they would get past these guarded soldiers. And not to mention Who are the people that would be most likely to steal the body in the first place? His disciples. And we know where they are. They ran for the hills. They are terrified playing a game of hide and please don't seek me right now. There's no way that they're coming to these guards and trying to steal the body. So no, the body wasn't stolen. The last one, well, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Maybe the ladies just went to the wrong tomb and there was an empty one, but nobody was in there. And the first, that wasn't even Jesus' tomb. Well, again, Matthew, our chess player, is careful to note it's the same two women who went to the tomb on Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, verse 28, or chapter 28, verse 1. These are the same two Marys in chapter 27, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who were sitting there when Jesus was buried. So you see this. They saw exactly where the tomb would have been. They're not pulling out Google Maps going, where are we? Recalculating route, recalculating route. Next tomb is in 200 paces. They know exactly where Jesus' body is. Now, of course, none of this alone is proof that the Christian story of a resurrected Savior is true. And nor is the next chapter when we see the empty tomb. It's been said before that where there is no room for doubt, there is no room for faith. Where there's no room for doubt, there's no room for faith. There is room for doubt that Jesus is alive. That's why we're called to receive this by faith, to believe what we can't see. And many over the centuries, they have doubted. But Matthew wants to make sure that our doubt is in the right place. You see, you and I have a faith that is rational, a faith that is rational. What I mean by that, it's logical, it's reasonable. Of course, there's a mystery there, and we there's room for doubt, but it's not an irrational faith. In other words, God's story here, Matthew's story of a risen Jesus is not full of holes and contradictions. You don't have to check your brain at the door to believe this stuff. No, Matthew says if you're going to doubt Jesus is raised from the dead, let it not be over the rationality of this story. Let it be to ask the question, could God, would God do such a thing? to rescue his people Israel, and to rescue you and I and all of mankind. The question is, do we trust the heart of God or not? The story is on solid ground.
Now I want us to linger here just a minute and meditate on this burial. I don't want us to just rush. We know where it's going, but let's not rush to chapter 28 just yet. In verse 57, it says, when it was evening, when it was evening, Joseph, he rushes to bury Jesus. Now, why would he have to hurry up and bury him? Well, he needs to get them buried before sundown. Why would that be? It's Friday night. And what happens on the Jewish calendar? Remember, the Jewish day ends at sundown and a new day begins. Not like us when it starts in the morning with your coffee. So it's Friday evening and what's about to begin? The Jewish Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of rest, not work. And so they can't bury Jesus on the Sabbath. He needs to get buried before the sun sets. And I love the way that Jen Wilkin puts this. The sun sets and the Sabbath begins. And we see this picture that when the Son of God dies, true rest begins for his followers. Because of his work, we have rest. Rest for our souls, eternal rest from sin and death, rest with the Father. Having completed his work on the cross, rest comes to all who are weary and heavy laden. It's a beautiful picture. See, Jesus went before us in the tomb. And and the path, that's a path that each of us will take. Unless Jesus comes back again first, we're each going to go into the tomb of our own. And we stand here in awe, or you sit here in awe on your couch. Once more, the thought that Jesus, alone of all of the human race, has found the way through the tomb and out into God's new world beyond. Matthew can hardly wait to take us to the, to the story in the next chapter where it's all revealed, and neither can I. So come on, let's go. Second one, the empty tomb gives us great joy. The empty tomb gives us great joy. Let's start this joy in chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, toward the first day of the week. Now, it's a new day and a new thing is about to happen here. Now, notice here, the resurrection isn't on the Sabbath. It's the first day of the work week. For the Jewish calendar, right? Their, their work week started Sunday, not Monday. They had like a pastor's work week. They had to work on Sunday. And so a new work has been accomplished on the cross and a new work is beginning through mankind with the risen Jesus. It's the first day of a brand new age. This is, could not be more exciting. And in verse two, it says, behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Verse four, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. I love that part and we'll come back to it. But the angel said to the woman, uh, to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Now what's interesting here, um, notice the angel rolls the stone back, but Jesus doesn't come out Miss America style. Here he is, son of God. He's not even here, Right? The angel doesn't roll back the stone to show Jesus. The angel rolls back to show that that Jesus is gone. What we see is the stone was in place when Jesus was raised. The stone couldn't hold Jesus, just like sin and death could not hold our Savior. And then I love this part in verse 4. It says that the guards, for fear of him, the angels, these, these Jewish tough guys, they see the angel and it says they trembled and became like dead men. 
these big, tough Jewish Navy SEALs, they see the angel and they do the fainting goats routine, which of course I had to pull up here. These poor goats that, yeah, boom. <laughs> that never gets old. Uh, so here are, well, I'll take it off. So I love the comparison here where the, there's living men who appear to be dead, these guards, and Matthew's contrasting those with a dead man who now appears to be alive in Jesus. And then the angel says, verse 6, He is not here, for he has risen as he said. So Jesus here is not just fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, but he himself said that he would rise. As we've been going through the story of Matthew, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to rise in chapter 12, chapter 16, twice in 17, in 20, in 26, and that's just what we have recorded. I'm sure he told his disciples many more times, and in fact, these women would have been part of his following, and they would have heard those words firsthand. And here again, we see Jesus fulfilling every promise that was made about him. I love this. In verse 7 and 8, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. I love that what we see here is this, he says they run with fear and great joy. And I always imagine, I mean, there's, there's really this close transition between those two emotions, isn't there? Like here's fear and here's joy. Fear, joy. That's a close transition transition, right? They're feeling the weight of this emotion and they're feeling both fear and great joy. I I imagine as they're running, there's also a, a thousand things running through their mind. Is this too good to be true? Can I really put my hope in this? If God could raise his son from the dead, what could he do in our lives and in our world? And then they run into Jesus himself, verse nine, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And this word greetings, this is a very common expression in, 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 uh, in, their, in their culture. So it would have been like him going, hey guys, what's up? Right? It's like it's totally normal to run into somebody who's been raised from the dead. And then it says they t- took hold of his feet. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And this is the appropriate response to Jesus. To the risen Jesus is awestruck wonder. And you imagine this moment. We thought you were dead forever. We thought all hope was lost. Everything you had said, we thought was a sham. And here you are, alive before us. And they grasp his feet. And likewise, you and I, we see the empty tomb. And with great fear and great joy, we go, can this be true? Is there really hope beyond sin, beyond the grave? And then we run just like the women to do as we're told until we can cling to the real risen Jesus' feet. We run. Hebrews 12 reminds us, we will let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. We run this race that God has for us in this life until we can grasp the real feet of the real Jesus. The last thing we see here is that the eyewitnesses give us great news. The eyewitnesses give us great news. So, In a court trial, there's nothing more valuable than the eyewitness, right? Someone who saw it happen firsthand. Someone who was in the room where it happened, the room. Okay, that's my last Hamilton reference. Um, If I was on trial uh, for stealing Sour Patch Kids from Walmart, okay, very specific situation here, and Pastor Ross takes the stand, 
He traitors me. He says, I was there at Walmart buying some Miracle Whip. Smart pastor. I knew we had a good hire here. And I saw Justin swipe three five-pound bags of Sour Patch Kids. Pastor's got a crave. That would be pretty indicting, right? If he saw me steal the Sour Patch Kids. But then, if Pastor Daniel says, I was also there buying Miracle, or by buying mayonnaise, boo. And I also saw it. Now we have two witnesses, right? Case closed. In fact, we hear somebody pipe up. Eliza, Eliza goes, yeah, he did it, right? Now we've got three, and I'm done, right? Can't stand up against Eliza's indictment. And here at the empty tomb, Matthew sets up his checkmate. He's got eyewitnesses at the tomb. And in the resurrection story, what we actually see in only 10 verses, five times we see the word see, and three times we hear behold, And so what do we put together here? We see that Matthew needs us to hear what was seen. And notice here on the scene, it's not just one Mary. We get two Marys, right? And no, I'm not talking about the 90s gospel duo, Mary, Mary, as great as they were. These two Marys were here at the scene. And remember, for Matthew's Jewish audience, two witnesses were needed to establish a credible testimony. And what do we see in his account? We see two women uh, witnessing, eyewitnessing Jesus's empty tomb. So again, this shows us our faith is rational. It's, it's credible. He was seen, he was touched, and he was heard. But it also shows that Matthew's not making stuff up here. Because if he was, he never would have used women as the first eyewitnesses. You see, neither Jewish nor Roman law saw a woman's testimony as credible. Now, ladies, do not shoot the messenger. I think you're very credible witnesses. Um, I think you would be great in a courtroom. I think you're very pretty, right? (laughs) Let's keep moving. Um, It also shows how God sees women, that he would entrust women with the first testimony of the risen Jesus. He values us all the same. And I love to think that it was a Mary who held Jesus for the first time at his birth and held his little physical feet. And now we have two Marys who are grasping this physical feat at his rebirth. What a beautiful picture to bookend the book of Matthew. And his first two eyewitnesses become his first two messengers. Look at verse 10. Do not be afraid, Jesus said to them. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. He echoes what the angel said back up in verses 6 and 7. Come, see the place where he lays, then go quickly and tell his disciples. So come and see, go and tell. Here we have our greatest show and tell. But tell who? The angel says his disciples, but Jesus says, go and tell my brothers. And I love this sweet note of grace here, that these are the ones, the men who had abandoned him and denied him, but Jesus has neither abandoned nor denied them. But he has forgiven them through his his death, and he will transform them through his resurrection. But when Paul speaks of the risen Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, he shows it's not just two Marys that see Jesus. It's actually over a thousand eyeballs that see the resurrected Jesus. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, very important chapter about the resurrection. Verse 5, he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom still are alive at the writing of, of Corinthians. Go ask them yourselves, though some have died. 
Then he was seen by James, this is the brother of Jesus, and later by all the apostles. And then verse 8, last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I, Paul says, saw also saw him. Each of these 500 witnesses are now a part of this show and tell with great news to tell. Tell what? That Jesus is alive, that we have a living hope, the living king and a living savior. And and brothers and sisters, you cannot overemphasize the resurrection of Jesus. You can't do it. It it changes literally, and I hate that you that word being abused, so I mean it here. It literally changes everything. The resurrection is God's dramatic launching of recreation, a whole new world. Jesus is the first one to enter it, and he is the door for everyone else to enter into this new world with him. And for more evidence here, we look at the lives of these eyewitnesses who are each completely transformed by the risen king. A couple of the ones that Paul mentioned. He mentions James, the brother of Jesus, who goes from being hostile toward Jesus. John 7 told us he didn't even like his brother. And he gets transformed into a bold leader in the church, an author of the Bible who will be brutally killed for Jesus in 62 AD. And then I love how beautiful that he mentions Peter here by name, one who had denied Jesus but is restored on the other side of the resurrection and boldly lives for Jesus and boldly dies for Jesus. And of course, he ends with himself. Paul, back when he was Saul, persecuting the the church, right? Persecuting followers of Jesus has an encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. He sees him as as an, as an untimely birth. He sees the living Jesus and he's transformed. He's never the same again. He has shown Jesus and then he tells the great news to the Gentiles and Paul is also killed for it. And Jesus, each of these men, is transformed by this living hope as they see Jesus. And he wants to transform you and I, too. And that's the newly transformed life that the newly transformed Peter talks about in his first epistle. First Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that we've been born again, new life, into a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus. Now see, all of us have some kind of a hope. If we literally, there I go again, had no hope, we would have no reason to live, no reason to act. The question is, what is our hope in? Because the reality is, if it's in things in this world alone, if it's in this current world, that my hope is that things will get better. Well, my hope is that the pandemic will eventually end, right? My, my hope is that I'll finally get married. My hope is that I'll have kids. My, my hope is that I'll get that raise or go on that vacation or that I'll get to retirement, so that I'll have those grandkids. That hope is a dead hope. The, the word dead, it means barren, fruitless, unproductive. That kind of hope in this world, that can't, that can't give you life. That can't give you joy. That can't transform you. You'll get to that thing, you'll realize it doesn't satisfy, and then you'll punch to the next thing that comes. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. If all of our hope is here, now listen, there is hope today, right? I mean, Jesus transforms us now. But the ultimate fulfillment of the promises that he gives us are on the other side of glory. And so we don't just put our hope in this life. That's a dead hope. But... 
If our hope is based on Matthew's evidence of an empty tomb and the eyewitnesses that see a risen Jesus, this is a huge, terrifying step. And some of you have not made this yet. You think this sounds crazy. It's a step of faith. This dead man was raised to life. It's a step of faith, but it is not an irrational one. And it gives us a living hope, not a dead hope, a living hope. Living meaning it's fertile and fruitful and productive. This kind of hope changes everything. It transforms us just like it did those disciples of Jesus. I love the definition of hope that it's a joyful and confident expectation. A joyful and confident expectation. It's confident expectation. Not just like a, well, I hope, like a wishful thinking. I hope my team wins. I, I hope that the, you know, the pandemic ends soon. It's not wishful thinking. It's, it's confidence. It's an expectation. And, and what exactly is it that we're uh, having a confident expectation of? Well, well, two things that Peter talks about after he mentions this living hope. The first one is hope that our future salvation is secure. And we must rest on this rock. Hope that our future salvation is secure. Look at what he says next. Now we live with great expectation. There's that confident expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change or de- and decay. This inheritance that's coming, your salvation, it can't decay. It can't be stolen. It can't be touched. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. He says this salvation, that you will be free from sin and death, that you will be restored to relationship with Jesus, given a new body. This salvation that's coming is secure and nobody can touch it. That's, That's hope. That's a confident expectation that produces joy. And so we know how our story ends. We already know the last chapter of this thing into eternity. So it gives us a security for what's coming in the future. But the other thing this hope gives us that he says is that our present trials and suffering have meaning. Hope that our present trials and suffering have meaning. Again, he goes on to say in verse six, so be truly glad. There is a wonderful joy ahead, a joyful confident expectation, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. He says, in the light of eternity, this is a little while, no matter what you're suffering, what you're going through. And and why does it have meaning? Why does it have purpose? He says, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor when the day Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. He says, a day coming when this will all make sense and everything you went through will be worth it. I was thinking about my, my, my dear friend, Chris Ball. He's a pastor, fellow pastor um, up in Anchorage in our same fellowship Dear man of God that has loved people, served people, shepherded, pastored people well for decades. And right now, Pastor Ball is in a hospital room in Anchorage. That Most of his organs aren't working right now. That, that Pastor Ball, it's starting to become a question of when and not if. And to put it on top of that, the great struggle where his family by and large has not even been able to go into the hospital room with him. 
And on top of the physical suffering, my brother Chris is experiencing spiritual warfare and and starting to, to walk through delusional thinking, feeling the battle on every side. And yet here's a man in his hospital room continuing to share Jesus with the staff around him. He goes, I got a captive audience. They're putting things into me. They have to listen to me. What a living hope that has transformed this dear brother of Christ. That he knows that this new body is waiting him on the other side where he will not have failing organs. He'll have a body like Jesus has that can walk right through stone tombs. And he has this hope to look forward. He'll never have to hurt again. He'll never have to suffer again. He'll never have to die again. My brother has a living hope and it's transformed him. And it's the same living hope that can transform you and transforms me. There's an empty tomb. The evidence of the eyewitnesses, better than a shack attack doll, we see that the tomb is empty. Come and see, he is not here. The eyewitnesses profess Jesus is alive. Now go and tell. And next week, as we wrap up Matthew, we're going to look at the go and tell part. Let's go tell the world and make disciples of Jesus that he is alive. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this story. We thank you that Jesus is alive. We thank you that he is, he is risen, that he has defeated sin and death for us, the first one to go onto the other side of the tomb into this new world that he is the king of. Father, we want to pray specifically for my brother Chris and his family as they're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Father, we do pray for the miracle. And Lord, we know that if it's not the miracle of you healing him on this side of glory, that we know the miracle has already happened, that he is raised with Christ spiritually. And if you are taking him home soon, that he'll be raised with Christ, that he'll be in your presence the moment he tastes death, as Paul talks about. And Father, we pray for his family that you would comfort and support them and come around them. Father, we know that there are many today listening to the live stream that are hurting Uh, Maybe they're suffering directly from the virus or indirectly from the virus or other complications in their lives. Father, we pray that the the living hope of the resurrected Jesus will transform hearts, that it will give them hope in the future salvation that is secure and that their present sufferings and trials are not meaningless, that you're using them to refine their faith, that you're using them to grow them and prepare them for ministry here on earth, fruitful ministry here, and to prepare them for that day when we see the glorious risen Jesus and clasp his real feet once and for all, just like the two Marys. Father, would you transform us from this living hope that we would lift high the name of the risen Jesus. It's in his risen resurrected, glorious, beautiful name that we pray. Amen.